my name is Crispina French and promoting creative textile reuse is my jam. I'm an OG textile alchemist, worked my way through art school making ragamuffins from thrift store sweaters way back in the 1980s. That college side hustle grew into a full-fledged business and here I am today to show you how to do it too. Stick around for all the things helping to navigate both the chaotic and dreamy chapters of building your profitable textile upcycling business. We'll talk material sourcing, business savvy, product development, marketing, and self-care. Gloss over the hard parts? Not here. Experience, lessons, and know-how. Deep dive into the struggles, wins, and rewards of running your sustainable textile upcycling business. Think of this as your favorite craft class mixed with environmental business school. Are you ready to be inspired, energized, and supported? This is the Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast. This episode of the Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast is brought to you by The Unruffled. The Unruffled is a vibrant and feminine collection of slow-made garments and accessories handmade with love by Sandra Primo. Sandra is based in Austin, Texas, and every item she makes is thoughtfully constructed from finely sourced, reused textiles, favoring silks and lace and crochet. Bespoke, one of one, encouraging an infinite circle of recovery. Step into the world of The Unruffled at www.theunruffled.com. And visit the show notes page for this episode at rags to riches textile upcycling podcast.com for links and more information. Hi, we are back with part two of this really cool three part series that I am doing here um, with the help of my friend Sarah Stewart, who is actually interviewing me, Crispina, your host here at the Rags to Riches podcast. Um, Sarah's joining me from New Hampshire, and she is a textile upcycling creatrix in her own right. And um, before we get started, I just want to remind folks if you're listening to this podcast, and you totally dig it, um, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review and share and tell all your friends how cool it is. Because the more listeners we have, the more people we can um, bring into this super cool creative way of thinking and living our lives in a uh, more gentle manner with um, upcycling textiles. I kind of joke about it being the gateway to gentle living. So um, yeah. Go there, Apple Podcasts, rate, review, share, um, subscribe, do all those things. And um, yeah, let's get right to it. So, hey, Sarah, thanks for coming back with me today and doing this little series. This is so fun. I'm so glad to be back. And we have a lot to talk about today. Um, we left off. We had talked about the, the whole beginning of your business, right? We talked about when you started in art school. We talked about... Has as your business grew and you scaled and you, you were working with all these wonderful home sewers and then you had to create a studio so that you could um, start using machines in your production. Remember we were talking about um, as you moved into blankets and sweaters and things, you it couldn't all be hand sewn, which actually was great because it sped up your production process, but it did mean that you actually had to have a place where people came to use your industrial sewing machines. Then what I wanted to talk to you about, what we haven't really touched on yet, is 
sourcing. So I think when you started, you were just going to thrift stores and thrift stores in the 80s and the 90s were so awesome. And there was so much good stuff in the stream. But what happens when you're getting 4,000 piece orders from Esprit and Crate and Barrel? How the heck do you get enough sweaters to do that? Well, that's a good question. And I think it's actually kind of a common question. I get asked a lot about sourcing pretty frequently. So yeah, let's dive in. so this is kind of a funny story. And actually, if I think back about my whole kind of journey, it's there's a lot of funny stories involved. But so um, I was, like you said, yes, I was buying at thrift stores. And then it became pretty clear that there was, I needed more than I could source that way. So I was kind of asking around and just kind of trying to figure out like what the next step would be. Um, it was pretty early on in my um, business. And this is, uh, this is so weird. So anyways, my mom and dad were both artists and, um, my dad is the person. And I think I shared this last time around was the person who kind of, uh, suggested that I use, um, shrunk wool sweaters to, um, for materials for my business. So, um, I was at their house visiting one weekend and, um, my dad had a friend who had recently defected from Romania. This was back in like, you know, the early nineties. And he, um, was the, like, I don't know really what his role was, but he actually worked for the Romanian government under Ceausescu. And he was like a folk art aficionado in Romania. So he had all of this really cool understanding of folk art and traditional art and whatever. And he was from Romania. He had just just landed in this country. Um, his It was a very circuitous and quite dangerous tra- um, traveling situation for him. So he came to our house and he stayed with my parents for like, I don't know, 10 years or something like that. And um, Paul was his name, Paul Petrescu. And he, I was talking to him about my predicament. He was really interested in my business. And he said, oh, there's this place in Cambridge that's called... Um, um, dollar a pound that sells wholesale clothing um, or, or not wholesale. It was like, you can buy a pound of clothes for a dollar and you should go check it out. <laughs> I had lived in Boston at this point by, for like, I don't know, five years. And I had heard on the periphery about dollar a pound, but I'd never been there. And this guy who was just landed in this country from Romania, <laughs> I don't know how in the world he knew about dollar a pound, but he hooked me up with um, that that place, and I wound up buying materials from Bruce Cohen, was the the guy who owned that business at the time, and he was a, a real mentor for me, and um, was just it was just such an adventure and like the stories are kind of incredible. Like Bruce Cohen had this big warehouse full of used clothing and they would sell me, you know, 800 pound bales and they would let me sort through all the material that they had and pick the stuff that I wanted. So like he would open a bale of what was called wool knits and I would sort through and buy the stuff I wanted and throw the stuff I wanted in one big pile and the stuff that I didn't want in another big pile. And generally I was looking at color because I was sorting for like my ragamuffins were all really brightly colored and patterned. And then at the time I was doing mittens, which were again, the same sort of material and the blankets that I was um, just kind of burgeoning into um, were also like my palette was really bright. So that's kind of what established the the piles, like the want pile and the discard pile. Um, and then over time that source became like, I was buying everything that I needed that I could from them. They didn't, I was, there was nothing. I, I was running out of material again. And then Bruce um, introduced me to the 
really intricate network of wholesale garment graders. They had initially been called ragmen back in the day, like at you know, the turn of the last century, like 1900s, there were people who drove around like in horse and carts in cities. And if you had textiles that you didn't want, or, you know, you would give them to these people who would then, you know, recycle them in some manner for um, whatever the, the needs were of that, that time. So, um, Bruce had been in the business his whole life. His parents had been in the business and he introduced me to um, a lot of family run businesses that were um, interestingly predominantly run by Jewish people. Um, the next guy I bought from was also a Cohen, Richard Cohen, and um, he was located in Brockton, Mass. So they were all pretty close to me in Massachusetts. Um, and you know, I would bought everything Richard had, and then Richard would send me on to the next person. And so over time, I had this network of uh, small family run businesses that I was buying from. And when I say small, like they had a ton of used clothing, like it wasn't, you know, they weren't physically small, they were just small compared to the um, process that is in place today, where um, there's very much fewer rag dealers that are further apart and that they do like colossal volume, like millions of pounds a day. So um, yeah, that's how I was sourcing my material. And during that time of my business, I would go to the different places and I would sort. And I, you know, I, I had a couple of people who worked for me who would help me with that process and who, you know, it was, it was really quick moving. Like you'd have to, we'd sort five or 6,000 pound bales a day and we'd be, you know, throwing into the discard pile and the keep pile and it had, you know, split second decisions were being made throughout that process. So the bottleneck at, at that point became the processing because, you know, everything had to be clean before we used it. So, and, you know, we had the little Maytag <laughs> washing machine that, I mean, it's, the, I don't even know how many millions of pounds of sweaters I washed in my little Maytag washing machine, but um, it was no longer going to, there was no way in heck that that machine was going to serve us in this, in this part of my business. So um, I can't remember now. I think it was Bruce Cohen who hooked me up with, um, I used to joke and call him Mr. Wright, Bill Wright, who ha um, was also a family run business in Chicopee, Mass. Um, that was called Lyman's and they had a laundry, a commercial laundry. And I would bring, I would truck the, the materials that I had sorted and to the laundry in Chicopee and they would machine wash and dry everything for me and then deliver it to me in boxes that was clean. Um, and there was, you know, experiment, like they were used to doing like, you know, uniforms or whatever. So they were pouring like tons of like bleach and like chemicals into their laundry, which actually the first load I brought to them was like this big puddle of like melted wool. When I went to pick it up, it was like this, they put chemicals. They didn't know. They were just like, whatever, we're washing this stuff. Right. And they like put all these weird chemicals that, you know, you might use for like the polyester tablecloths from like wedding parties or whatever. And it just did not work with the wool. It was all like one color, this kind of like blob of like bubbling, weird melted wool. And, um, I was like, Oh my, you know, 
I always ran my business on like kind of a shoestring. And I was like, oh my God, like not only is that expensive, but like, I don't know where I'm going to get more wool because I just bought everything that the supplier had. So, but we worked through it and um, Bill, right, really super, super helped me. He like really worked with me to figure out the right, like hot wash, cold rinse, like the shrinking process. And like, it took, a you know, probably a couple of months, maybe half a year to like really refine it down to the place that it was like, exactly what we wanted. So that was kind of the process for a few years in there. So during this time, are you still doing, like this is continuing, you've still got 40 people working in your shop and you're still shipping stuff. This is all still mostly wholesale and shipping around the world to boutiques and also to the bigger brands that you were still working with? Yeah. And actually, I mean, honestly, I think that this process really kind of unfolded pretty early on. Um, I had two people who worked for me who kind of morphed into the position of of production management. And one of them did like pre-finished goods, like, um, you know, scheduling, like how much material we need when kind of stuff and how many cut, you know, how many pounds of whatever we need cut for whoever's going to make it. And the other gal did more like, uh, order completion, like making sure that, you know, the work orders for the sewers were going to come out so that we would have everything for a particular order, um, on time. And, um, Kathy and Nancy, Uh, I hope that they're listening and know how important they were to the success of my business. They were just amazing people who just fell from the sky and helped me so much. And um, one of the reasons why there was a three-person team with me and both of them is because I was located in this little studio in a town called Millerton, New York. And um, I had, there was a hairdresser upstairs and I was like on the basement level of this pretty good size. It had been uh, like a warehouse for the train, you know, years ago, it had, it was a pretty old building and we outgrew it. So there was actually two locations within this little town that were separated by a couple of blocks. So we had all the cutting and the material preparation was happening in our first studio. And then the finished goods were brought by the home sewers up to the um, newer studio where we packed boxes and shipped orders you know, inventoried everything and, you know, quality checked everything and then, you know, shipped the orders from there. So um, that was kind of our process. And that we were in Millerton for um, six or seven years. Um, and that's where the growth of my business was like just burgeoning where it was like, okay, all of a sudden we needed two studios. And then we we, we never had trouble finding people to do the work But the next issue that we ran into was water because Millerton, I think, actually still has um, no municipal public water or sewage. And so, like, even though we were having the bulk of our material processed by Lyman and Chicopee, we were using a fair amount of water and we it was going to keep us from being able to continue to grow at the rate that we had. So and the guys and ties from the state of New York, um, the economic development, um, council from New York state was aware of what I was, how I was employing people. And they were very gentle about telling me that it's actually really not legal or it wasn't at the time in New York state to employ people sewing in their homes. And 
I knew through a business that I had, um, actually, I was a waitress at a company that also had a home goods, um, you know, they had a hotel and a restaurant, but they also had a company called Country Curtains. And they had, they were located in Massachusetts. And I knew that they employed people in their homes sewing. So I thought, huh, maybe I should look into the logistics of doing this in Massachusetts. And that was kind of when I started to think about relocating. Hmm. I didn't even know you were, because just a minute ago, you were telling us you were in Boston and you were getting all these materials from Boston. And then, and then suddenly you're in Millerton, New York, and now you're moving back to Massachusetts. So this is a whole. An undisclosed chapter of the Crispina history, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, really the reason why I was in Millerton, New York is because my partner at the time, the father of my son, was um, a farmer, and he lived in Connecticut. And so, where where we lived, like I, I when we, when I met him, his name is Charlie. He lived in Connecticut, and I lived in Massachusetts. But his farm was actually in Connecticut and New York, like across the state line. So there's this area that was called the tri-state region. That's like where all three of those states come really close together. There's a corner there, and um, the rent in Millerton was, you know, I found a space basically. And it was kind of like right down the road from both where I had been in Massachusetts and also where Charlie and I were living in Connecticut. So it seems like a lot of moving, but it's actually not that far as far as distance goes. Yeah. I've got my, I've got my Google maps open and I'm looking here going, Oh, Boston corner. Okay. Here's this little spot where all these three States go together. So this is cool. So I'm from the Northwest and I've only lived in New England for three years. And so here I am, I'm learning my geography while I have our textile upcycling conversation. This is awesome. Um, So (laughs) at some point in here, okay, so you relocate the business and then at some point you decided to sell your business. How did you get to that decision? Okay, so yeah, so... um... All right. I moved out of New York state to Massachusetts for a couple of reasons. One was the lead, really the underlying reason was the legality of me employing people in their homes. And I was getting a lot of recognition, like people were going kind of nuts for my product. And I was being featured in different publications, you know, LA times, New York times, like I was kind of like, oh my gosh, like I was kind of blown away by all of that. And I knew the guys in ties, like I like to refer to them, knew that it was going to become a problem for me if I didn't do something different. So they really encouraged me to to check out Massachusetts. And they actually helped me learn about how to employ people in their homes legally in the state of Massachusetts. So um, that prompted the move. And then when I was I was there for I moved there in. I don't even remember the year, but anyways, I was in uh, this really cool, mil- cool old mill complex in Housatonic, Massachusetts for, um, I guess the better part of 10 years. And, um, it was, it was just a lot, like all of a sudden I had, I was like realizing that the, the energy I was putting out was really more about, um, employing people. It was about managing people. It was about running a business and making sales goals and that sort of thing. And which I loved. And I, I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, I love math. I love spreadsheets. I love kind of that part of things, but 
I also really love to make things. And I didn't really, my dad said to me one day as I was going out the door to the studio, he said, what are you going to make today in the studio? And I thought about it and I was like, I'm going to make phone calls and emails. That's what I make every day. And I thought, you know what? I want to make something different than that. And it really got me thinking and thinking about how I could continue on my path and it, uh, offer my product to more people and have more of a impact in our textile upcycling or not upcycling, but in just bringing awareness to the idea of textile upcycling, bringing awareness to the idea of assessing how we consume textiles. And I just thought, you know what, I have this, um, collector who has supported my business for years. And she was part of the family that owned the company I mentioned earlier called Country Curtains. And, you know, it was a home furnishings company. They had stores, they had retail stores. I think they had, uh, I believe they had 40 stores at the time. They, had, they did a lot of direct mail catalog sales. That was really kind of the place they started. And, um, I was kind of just sort of struggling in my position in the company. And so Nancy Fitzpatrick, who is uh, really lovely, like I call her my fairy godmother because I feel like she is. And I um, kind of came up with this plan where she actually bought my business. And that was kind of to enable me to return to my creative process, honestly, and become like the creative director of the company that she owned. Um, and that was that she purchased my company in the 2003. The first thing we did was go right to Burning Man, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, I'd never had a boss before. And suddenly I'm like at Burning Man, like, you know, with very few pieces of clothing on and like lots of opportunity to bend my mind in ways that hadn't been bent before. So um, that was kind of a really fun adventure. And, you know, we worked together for five years. She um, really helped me develop a collection of of, uh, product that was not cold weather oriented. Um, She really helped me uh, kind of take the seasonality out of my business, which, or not out, but like spread it out a little bit more. Cause I had always, one of the things I had found most difficult about running my production company was that I did 75% of my sales in the last quarter of the year. So, you know, paying people in like August and September was like a stretch, you know? So, um, yeah, that was, um, how that piece went. Um, And we opened a retail store, which was awesome because then we had like actual like input from people who were buying the product, right? It wasn't just from people who were, I mean, like, of course, people were buying the product, but these were like people who were buying it to use themselves, not necessarily to turn around and resell. Um, So that was really informative. Can I pot? Can I, um, can I interject for a second? Yeah, please. So, so I just, because I haven't heard anything about this. What were you producing that was not... Um, you know, that was not winter focused, that was not, was more, less seasonal. Um, so most of the things that I had been making up until, um, I sold the business were, were made out of wool, cashmere or, or alpaca. I did actually start using, I was doing, a, um, I did a bunch of like re, like mended overalls, like 
I bought bales of overalls out of a supplier in Texas. They were amazing. I wish I could still get those overalls, but, um, but she was like, okay, if you're going to do blankets for winter, you got to do blankets for like, not just summer, but for like Texas and like Florida and places where it doesn't get cold because right now you're, you're, you're in this market that is cold weather oriented. Like people are not necessarily going to buy really expensive, beautifully made wool blankets if they live in a climate where it doesn't get cold. So I started using denim to make blankets and using, I was using t-shirts and, and men's dress shirts and layering them and creating like textural. I was actually really inspired by the, um, you know, the chenille bedspreads from back like in the twenties and thirties that were like super textural, but cotton. So I was kind of creating my own textural finish to a cotton, less of a blanket, more of a kind of coverlet or bedspread. Cool. Okay. That was a, a nice little sojourn over into this. I'm like, wait a minute. I've never heard about this. Um, okay. So you're doing this, um, working for, for Nancy being the creative director. And then I think you wrote a book. How did that come about? Well, that was really fun. So you know what I think we should do, though? I think we should take a little break. So we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and I'll tell you about the book. Okay, cool. Today's episode of Rags to Riches podcast is brought to you by the Stitcherhood Recycling Society, my online membership community for creative textile upcycling, recycling, and reuse entrepreneurs. Inspiration, shared experience, tutorials, business savvy, and connection to a whole posse of people who understand the passion and intricacies of running an environmentally kind, creative textile upcycling biz. Daily posts, weekly stitch hours, book recommendations, group chats, member profiles, and strong connections is what you can expect when you join Stitcherhood. Head on over to stitcherhood.crispina.eco and sign up for a free seven-day trial to see if my Stitcherhood Recycling Society is a good fit for you and your textile upcycling business. Okay, cool. So you were just asking me about my book. So in 2000, I think it was like 2006 or seven, I was approached by a company called Story Publishing to write a teaching book about my process. And I was super excited and super flattered by the offer. But I also was a little bit like, oh, okay, so I'm going to teach people how to make the product that I'm currently selling that I'm employing 40 people to make. And it's not really, I'm not employing these people anymore because I'd sold my business at this point. It's somebody else's business now. And I need to like, I need to be really mindful of making that relationship, keeping that relationship super healthy. So Nancy and I met and talked about it. And she was just like, you know what? I really just don't think this is a great idea. I think that really like you know, keeping your process for the business that we currently are running together needs to be what we do. And I was more of the mindset where I was like, you know, I'm all about like open source stuff, but I also was an employee. I was not in charge. And I kind of, I was a little torn and, you know, we went back and forth about it a little bit, Nancy and I, and, and she was really clear that she was not really into the whole idea of me sharing what she had purchased, really, that was really hers at this point. Um, 
as, you know, kind of knowledge to share. So I kind of put it on the back burner and was like, okay, whatever. Like, I get it. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. And then as Nancy and I worked together, she got to a point where she was like, okay, I, I really, she wanted to retire. She's, uh, she was getting to the point where that was the part of her life she was looking at. And she had been working really hard with me on my business. And she just was like, you know what, I just need to shift. And that was actually, there was a, that and um, her decision to shift into her retirement and was paired with my difficulty in securing the volume of materials that I needed to keep my business going at the scale that we had built it to. Um, at that point, I was purchasing material in Italy and um, I was having, you know, the, the, the waste was generated in this country, in the United States. It was shipped in tractor trailer load, you know, containers to Italy Italy was color sorting it and I was buying it from Italy and shipping it back to the United States. And I was like, when I first started doing that, I was just like, this is not environmentally kind. This is not really the way that I feel like is the right way to go. But I was kind of in this place where I felt like my hands were tied and I had all of these orders. I had all these customers. I had all these employees and now I had a boss. So I was like, we're just, I'm going to just, you know, swallow it and just like do what I need to do to keep this machine working. And it was costing me much more to ship the material than it was to actually buy the material, which was another thing that was just like, what on earth? What is, what is, is this, this is not right. Um, so, you know, it was expensive. So Nancy and I would have conversations about the, the costs involved with the material collection and and then when she decided that she really wanted to step down, I had the opportunity to continue, but I didn't really want to. I kind of wanted to use it as an opportunity to kind of rethink how I was impacting our textile waste crisis. And I thought, okay, she's going to step down. We're going to close production and I'm going to write this book because now I can. And she, you know, the way that it worked over time with Nancy and I, she actually gave me back my business. Like here, have a gift. You can have it. It's yours. And I was like, you know, totally did not anticipate that coming. But like, like I said, she is still to this day, my fairy godmother. So Nancy, I hope you're listening to this because I love you. And um, she, so she gave me back my business and then I felt that the time was right where I could actually feel good about sharing my process in a way that would be inspirational to a lot of people. And my book was published in 2009. It's called The Sweater Chop Shop. And it's actually out of print right now, but you can find it used in the used book places. Bookshop.org, I think is probably my favorite place to look for used books, but there's other places, thrift books. And we all know about Amazon, so I don't want to plug them too much. But um, yeah, so that kind of, it was a lot of work. I'm really not that good at like articulating a process. Like I'm, I have a much easier time showing someone how to do something rather than going like, oh yeah, you got to thread your needle and do this and do that. Like step-by-step -step written instruction. I'd never actually done that before. I'd always just like, 
hey, new home sewer, come on over here, sit down with me. These are your tools. These are my tools. This is how I do it. You follow me and I'll check in with you, that kind of thing. So it was actually a really valuable experience for me to learn how to document that way. Mm -hmm. And it was building on, you just touched on this, but it was building on the teaching that you'd been doing all along since day one of having your very first employee where you were having to teach everyone your process and they would adapt it as they needed. But you were saying, this is how you, this is how you make a ragamuffin. This is how you make a piece of a ragamuffin. And so really, you know, while your product was production, you had been a teacher this whole time, right? And this book was just this next piece. Yeah. And it's funny, like my parents were both artists, but they actually like made their money from teaching. Like they both taught at the public high school that I attended in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. So my mom was actually my dad's boss, which I didn't realize was weird at all until I was like 25. Um, So she was the supervisor of the art department and he was a teacher there. And I didn't realize how much I really loved teaching until I wasn't teaching anymore. And so the book really opened this opportunity for me to really dive into that. And, you know, I can teach anybody how to make uh, stuff out of used clothing. I, I love it. I feel like it's such a, it, it's so accessible for anyone. You don't really need anything expensive. You just need a pair of scissors and a ball of yarn and a pile of old clothing. I mean, sure, you can have an expensive sewing machine if you want to, but it's not necessary to get started. Um, so I really love that. And the book was able, I was able to, you know, once the book was published, the next kind of step was just to teach in person. I, I actually, I remember the very first workshop I ever taught, I invited a bunch of my friends who were super crafty people to just come and take a workshop and let me know, like, I just wanted to see if the way I taught would work in a setting where I was teaching a lot of people at the same time from different skill sets, you know? And it went really well. And people were able, it was like a one day workshop and everybody made a sweater and it was like, oh, cool. Okay. This is viable. And then I started just teaching in my studio. Um, I got invited to teach at some pretty cool places um, all around. You know, I most recently taught at Snow Farm, which is located not far from where I am in um, Williamsburg, Massachusetts. And I taught at Kripalu, I mean, different like retreat centers and different, um, you know, I taught, I did a workshop at the Dallas Center for Art in Dallas, Texas. I mean, it really allowed me to travel, which I kind of missed because I wasn't doing wholesale shows anymore. Um, And it also allowed me to be in settings of different kinds that just kind of inspired me in themselves. So it was really cool. Awesome. So you were teaching in all these places. What happened next? So you you published a book and you're teaching. Were you still producing anything or was you, did you really fully transition to teaching? Well, you know, that's, that's kind of like, um, my thing It's like, I always have more than one thing going on at a time because I, I get easily, um, not really bored, but I just, I need to kind of like change the, part, like uh, how I'm creating, I need to have diversity even in the day, like not just like from one month to the next, but like within any given day, I like to have different things to 
work on. So I was always making and I was selling, you know, because I had gone from this large volume capacity to fill orders um, and I had had an Etsy shop for years, suddenly I had this you know, demand that I couldn't meet. So it was really easy for me to sell everything I was making. And I was able to charge what I had charged or what my customers had charged retail. I was able to charge for myself, which just meant I was making more money per hour, if you will, than I had been prior. Um, so I spent about, while I was writing the book, I spent, you know, it was a solid like six or nine months of writing the book and making product. And then when I started teaching, I wanted to continue to make products so I could show people like the different uh, variables of what was possible to create with the process I was teaching. So I was always making things. And then as I was being invited to these different locations to teach, I ran across different people. And some of the people that I ran across at one of the retreat workshops I did that was like, I think it was like a five-day uh, stretch, uh, which is like the longest retreat that I think I've ever taught. It was five days of like all the different types of processes that I had developed at that time. And I had um, a student who was uh, highly, uh, well, she was a, Actually, she was Eileen Fisher, the person's assistant. So she wasn't really like high up in the Eileen Fisher company. She was actually like somebody who worked directly with Eileen Fisher as like a personal assistant, but also um, oversaw part of her design team. So um, Cheryl Campbell was at one of my workshops and she just became really enamored by the process and asked if I'd be interested in working directly with the Eileen Fisher design team to just uh, kind of spark a new way to look at things, right? To just kind of give them a fresh kind of spin on things. And of course, I was super excited about the idea. And that began a relationship that um, spanned a few years of me working with their design team and then with their take back program to develop uh, a product line that would be marketable with their with their take back. So um, that was a really pretty awesome experience. Uh, Eileen Fisher uh, is a really forward thinking clothing company run by a woman named Eileen Fisher, who um, is close to retirement at this point. I was just reading about her transition away from being uh, the, such a hands-on CEO. Um, I had initially met Eileen Fisher, the person back in uh, 1995 at the Social Venture Network conference I had attended. So, you know, partnering with her was just like a really nice kind of welcoming warmth that um, brought me into the place where, you know, there was a high level of visibility in a, in a level of companies that were beyond what I had imagined being willing to accept my process as something they could incorporate into their process. So from that grew their Renew program, their Green Eileen program, um, Waste No More is their latest uh, addition to that take back program. And they have taken the, the process that we worked together on and just zoomed forward and they're just doing amazing, cool stuff with it. So um yeah, that was an awesome experience. So 
what's really cool about this is, you know, kind of what I want to cover in these conversations is from you, what you said last time of, I was getting product, I was making product, I was selling product so that I could pay my bills so that I could pay my tuition. Like it was really started there. And then here we are at this moment where you've written a book, you're teaching, you're in fact teaching a global brand how to kind of think about this process, consulting with them. Then they take it and run with it. And I think there's a seed planted for you, right? That we're going to talk about on the next episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm super excited about that. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to have to tune in, you guys. Number three is coming up next week. Woohoo! Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sarah. That was really fun. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Christina. Hey, so I'm over here and I'm serving you a giant air hug because you just finished another episode of the Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast. Thank you for being with me. Our music is provided by The Lucky Five. Learn more about them at theluckyfive.com. Our show is produced and edited by Van Valhyacin. If you want to dive in deep, head over to Rags to Riches Textile Upcycling Podcast.com. 